Hey everyone, I'm Mitchell Hora, a farmer in Southeast Iowa. And I'm Zach Johnson. I farm in West Central Minnesota. And you guys probably already know that you are listening to the Fieldwork Podcast, which is by Farmers for Farmers. And we wanted to say a big thank you to the Walton Family Foundation for helping us out this season. Zach, it's been a couple episodes already that we've been talking about this Washington County miniseries and the conservation culture down here. It's one thing to talk with a bunch of people, but we got to figure out what do the actual researchers say. We got to have a little bit of science coming on in here, Zach. That's right, because we are professional podcasters, and this is a very professional podcast. And it turns out that Purdue University and the Nature Conservancy have actually been looking a lot at uh, some of the same things that we have. They recently did a big study on the rates of adoption of cover crops and some other conservation practices in counties in Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa. And it turns out there are actually other spots just like Washington County. Just none of them up in Minnesota, though, right? Well, we can't all be perfect. So in this episode, we're going to talk with Linda Prokopi at Purdue University. We are also going to have on Chris Johnson, the Interim Director of Agriculture for North America at the Nature Conservancy. Whew. Here's Linda and Chris. Linda, let's start with you. The, the description of what it is you do is so long that I'm going to let you get into um, w- what it is you do and, and where you work. So I am in the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture at Purdue University, and I research what motivates farmers to adopt conservation practices. Pretty simple, Zach. I don't know how you're going to get that. (laughs) Well, it also says uh, Indiana Water Resources Research Center. Oh, yes. I am also the director of that center. Yes. But, But for today's purposes, I research what motivates farmers to adopt conservation practices. Got it. Okay. So there's a lot of research and directing going on. Mm -hmm. Yep. Excellent. And And Chris, you are also a director. You are the deputy director of agriculture at the Nature Conservancy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So how, explain to us first, how, what's the partnership here between Chris, what you're doing and Linda, what you're doing? Are you guys directly tied together? Or Chris, what's that relationship look like that the Nature Conservancy has with this department at Purdue? Yeah, well, we, you know, we're fortunate enough to uh, to have a great relationship with with Linda and her team, and we've worked on a number of different projects with them. Um, and so, for this particular study, that is the most recent thing we've worked on, um, the Nature Conservancy, you know, had a real interest in in continuing to try to understand some of these really key kind of behavioral and social questions around farmer adoption. And so we uh, we got some money from a, a donor and uh, set up a, a project with, with Linda and her team to, to try to dig a little deeper and understand it a little bit better. So, and hopefully we'll be able to kind of cue in the results and you guys will have to uh, share with us, you know, if we can, uh, if our listeners can see those results online, but the gist of the research that we want to talk about here today is looking at why is there certain higher adoption rates or lesser adoption rates of cover crops specifically in different counties? Linda, explain to us what this research was and dig a little bit deeper than uh, the quick explanation that I gave there. Sure. So this came about when Chris and I were talking about some results that the Nature Conservancy had found looking at new data coming from a partnership they have that I'll let Chris talk about, where they're able to identify cover crop adoption rates at the county level. Like Linda said, um, this is a new technology that that we've been working with a, with a partner of ours called Dagan over the last few years to develop. It's called Optus, the Operational Tillage Information System. And it's really kind of the first time we've ever been able to use satellite 
and satellite imagery to not only know if you know we're looking at corn or soy or a forest or a you know a street but to actually look at that corn field at that soybean field and see the amounts of residue look at different snapshots over the course of the year and see if those cover crops are emergent at the right time of the year you know so you can actually go deeper than just classifying what kind of plant is there but you can look a little bit into the management and so with those data in hand across the entire corn belt we have this snapshot of you know hot spots where adoption seems to be you know taking off at a much higher rate and then cooler spots where it's it's kind of lagging a little bit. And then looking at the maps, you could see that counties that were adjacent to each other didn't have similar adoption rates that didn't appear to be explained by differences in temperature or precipitation or soil type. And then the question was, well, what is explaining that difference, right? It's probably a social factor, but we can't figure that out just from looking at a map. We need to actually go and talk to people. How widespread was this study? We covered Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana. Okay, so the the bulk of obviously the I states they're right in the heart of uh, I guess what I what we'd call the Corn Belt. Mm-hmm. Zach, are you just mad that they left Minnesota out of the trial or what? No, it's okay. I'm sure they were intimidated. <laughs> Chris is from Minnesota, so he probably would have liked that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, you know, I lobbied, but uh, to no avail. So Linda just wouldn't have anything to do with it. So. I, so, if I were you, Chris, I would just say you didn't want the conflict of interest. <laughs> right, right. There you go. So, Linda, you guys were looking at, okay, what's going on in these different counties? What was the protocol? How did you guys go about the start of this project? And were you asking questions or collecting survey data or what What was the protocol like? My postdoc, Rex Popovici, who is working on this, her proposal was that we do this, what's called controlled comparison. So find counties that look the same based on the data we already had, right? So they look the same in terms of population size, climate patterns, other things that we sort of knew going in were, were more or less the same. And then by studying those two counties that were similar, and we'd had multiple pairs of counties, but by studying the pairs of counties, we could tease out what the differences were, which is actually a very powerful method that I, this is the first time I've used that method and I'm really impressed with what we were able to find using it. And so um, that's where, you know, Linda and Rux really framed out a set of interesting questions to kind of bring to, um, to producers, to local professionals in each of the watersheds to try to build that, that richer, richer picture of the social kind of fabric of each of these kind of case study watersheds and counties and um, trying to understand you know, who are the people on the ground? What are the resources that go into those watersheds? What's the staff capacity like? Um, you know, what's the relationship between the local farmers and their sort of professional agronomists, their, you know, state agency or federal agency staff? You know, what's that sort of social network context like? That's where we started to get some insights on, you know, all else being equal, seemingly, and yet, you know, two counties might actually be really different in terms of that that kind of social fabric and the interplay of some of some of those different characteristics. Obviously, making the decision to grow or to not grow cover crops is an individual decision on on every farm. They'll have different reasons for doing so or for not doing so. We've done a lot of other studies where we actually do a lot of surveys and interviews directly of farmers, right, to understand what it is that motivates an individual farmer to adopt a practice. But 
we, we know there are these geographical patterns, right? So we thought this was an interesting chance to try to understand those a little bit more. And we, we could have picked watersheds. The data, we could have broken out the data by watersheds, but the data was already broken out by counties. And a lot of, while obviously we know, you know that it makes sense to think about water quality, et cetera, at a watershed level, our administrative bureaucratic boundaries are county levels, right? So our soil and water conservation district staff, extension staff, and RCS are county-based. So we went with the county approach. So Linda, when we were talking with farmers in Washington County, some of them were joking around that some of our neighboring counties say, well, they get the they they get more rain in Washington County, or or it's you know just saying that at the county line, you know, it it works there, but right across the county line, it doesn't work. You you shouldn't see those types of differences right along county lines, right? Because the the wise people who preceded us who drew those county lines were not thinking about <laughs> ecological boundaries. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it it is interesting to see some of that. You know, like in my area, it doesn't matter what county you go in here within 50 or 100 miles of me. It's pretty difficult to find cover crops being grown unless it is some sort of a you know, a specialty crop or somebody's um, using cover crops ahead of their uh, their hay crop or their their alfalfa that's coming up. That's when you see it here. But going down to the Washington County area where we went to last summer and interviewing the farmers down there and seeing how it was a, a county thing down there, it was very interesting. So I, what, I'm curious, what did the study find? What did you guys come up with? So what we found um, was that the counties where they, there was higher adoption had several things in common that the low adoption counties didn't have, right? So the questions that we asked when we did our focus groups and interviews were very open-ended, right? Just tell us what's going on in your county and what's... And then we went through and analyzed the data and we found that the counties with high adoption had several things, right? They had more committed staff. They had a what we called a cover crop culture they had this relationship between conservation staff, so government agency staff, and entrepreneurs, right? Whether those be farmers or cover crop or um, crop advisors in each of those counties. And the two, the, those latter two, the cover crop culture and this relationship between government staff and entrepreneurs, we only found those in counties with high adoption, Right. So those those are missing in the low adoption counties. So, yeah, and I think I think that's really interesting on, you know, Zach, even what we've looked at kind of our own, I suppose, research that we've been doing here on at the Fieldwork podcast, specifically on Washington County. You know, we've just done the one county, but a key thing that's come up time and time again is the conservation culture. That's been number one. And then it was the NRCS um, and government employees. But the key one there was the guy that was with the um, extension was the guy at the time, but he was really pushing it and was really involved in the 60s is when this really started with with pushing that and developing that conservation culture. For Washington County, there is a program beyond CSP and EQIP. We've got a watershed project right here that has some additional funding. The collaboration and like the entrepreneurial farmers, we saw you know multiple of the farmers that we talked with that are involved in the equipment side of things or they're diversifying to livestock or they're involved in cover crops or they're involved in, you know, other entrepreneurial ventures to diversify their farm. So Zach, what do you, what do you think? It's just kind of funny to me, I guess, on kind of everything we've been talking and some of the stuff that we've been finding seems to resonate really well with some of this data from Purdue. 
you know, it's, it's definitely interesting. Chris, can you explain a little bit about what the Nature Conservancy does and why you guys thought you wanted to get interested in this study and, and figure some of this out? Sure. Yeah, well, so, you know, as I mentioned, I work for our agriculture program, and um, we've had a, an agriculture program at the sort of North America, U.S. scale for about the last 10 years or so. But we've actually been working, you know, in agricultural landscapes for a long time with a lot of farmers doing a lot of projects. More recently, our, our big goal has been to try to do what we can as an organization to try to help scale up adoption of, you know, soil health and nutrient management practices to do what we can to kind of, um, you know, provide information, provide incentives to, you know, build partnerships that can really try to unleash a lot of those, you know, call them regenerative agriculture practices. So what we've learned, uh, you know, from, from research, like what we've been talking about today, but also, you know, earlier than that, what we've learned is this is not just a money problem and you can't just sort of throw financial resources at it and expect, you know, things to, to sort of trend in the right direction. There's, there's a lot more complexity and nuance to it. And, um, you know, this is a behavior issue. This is a, a social issue an information and an educational issue. It's a relationship issue. And so, you know, we're really interested to try to partner with, with, you know, leading researchers, uh, like Linda and her team, to try to understand, you know, what else can we do? What other kind of enabling conditions could we maybe, you know, work with partners to help create so that, you know, if, if a watershed or if a county, if a state has enough resources, what are the other kind of missing ingredients that have to be there in order to see some of these practices get adopted at, at wider scales? So that's yeah. really sort of kind of why we built this partnership and and we're already, you know, the wheels are already starting to turn about, okay, well, what do we do with this information and, and how can we help play a role to to use this to to be more successful kind of going forward and, you know, getting practices on the ground. So Chris, I, I totally agree that, you know, it's there's a lot of different places where farmers can get dollars to implement cover crops. And a lot of farmers that are utilizing that, whether it be cost share or now there's a lot more of a focus on this from the Biden administration. There's a, a big focus around carbon markets and things like that. But it's more than just a money problem. Money doesn't just solve this clearly. There's plenty of opportunities out there. And a lot of farmers are not necessarily taking advantage of those programs. There's some logistic concerns around it too um, and building that culture. But Chris, what I want to ask you, and actually Linda, I want your take on it too, but what was something that stood out from you uh, or stood out for you in the results here that kind of surprised you? Anything that you weren't expecting? Yeah, well, it, it just that sort of interface and that integration, that kind of multiple characteristics all kind of working together stood out. I mean, it shouldn't have surprised me really. Um you know, to be honest, if this were just a, if there were a silver bullet, you know, if we could, if it was money and only money and we could, you know, know that, that that was the answer, that would be a little simpler. It's, but it's more complicated than that. And so I think the thing that really jumped out at me is just that we need to be, we need to be smart. We need to be kind of context specific. We need to understand the conditions on the ground, the people involved, the relationships between the organizations. And then we have to learn from these counties where we've seen, you know, higher rates of adoption that, you know, that, that hockey stick is a little steeper. And then we have to kind of figure out how to pick that up and move that to some other counties. You know, what was the sort of the secret blend of ingredients there? And is there any way to replicate that and to, to try to export that to, 
you know, to other places. Linda, what stood out to you? What any anything that was surprising on your side? No, I would agree with Chris that the results echo a lot of other studies we've done about what motivates farmers to adopt practices. But it was really that combination of things going on in each county that you know I think we were thinking well, maybe there'll be one thing right that really differentiates these counties and it wasn't just one thing which in a sense makes it much harder to replicate the successful counties right because you have to replicate a lot of different things one piece that that does surprise me a little bit that I asked my Rux my postdoc who was working on this to see if there were any differences in our report, we talked about Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana sort of collectively, right? But I asked her if there were any differences between the three states. And what she found when she went back and looked at how people talked about cover crop culture. So cover crop culture, very important, all of the counties with high adoption across the three states. But what that culture was, was different in the different states, right? So in Iowa, cover crop culture is... Um, Sort of, it's linked to a long-term investment in business. Farmers liking this because it's part of their entrepreneurial culture, and they're they're getting um, they're trying new things in their business, right? Whereas in Indiana and Illinois, cover crop culture was more linked to having a stewardship ethic in that county. So all the all the counties again having some sort of a culture around cover crop adoption, super important, but that culture wasn't exactly the same in the different states, which I think is interesting. That's a really interesting find. Mm-hmm. Yep. And well, and Zach, I'm trying to relate that back to like, okay, the conservation culture here in Washington County is what I'm trying to think of right now. And I think it's, I find it as kind of a combination there that farmers are looking at it as a direct business decision, but it's also, we're kind of down where there's a lot of rivers coming together. We've got a lot of hog manure. We've got some variability to the land. So it's a you know, it's a conservation decision, but it's got to make business sense as well. Um, I don't know, Zach. I mean, it it does make sense. But one of the things that struck me on the map and what your thoughts, Zach, is, you know, there was some key, you know, counties and like some, I thought there were some trends to the map that a lot of Southern counties seem to have a lot more adoption than Northern counties. And then some of these counties that are more adjacent to some of these major rivers had more adoption than some other counties. Did you kind of get that same vibe, Zach? I did notice that looking at the maps and I guess, you know, to me, it's not surprising, but as a farmer, the first place I go in my head is, well, yeah, the Southern counties have the warmer weather. They have more time to grow the cover crop. They maybe get the harvest done earlier before the ground freezes up, which is a a, a battle in my area to get something established. If you're going to wait to plant until after harvest, it's it's definitely too late here. And then um, I did notice next to the rivers as well. And then my head goes to, well, the topography next to rivers, a lot of the times you get highly erodible land where you can really benefit more from cover crops and trying to keep that soil in place. And maybe there's more pressure to, you know, make sure that the the soil and the water next to the river is cleaner. And and so maybe that is some of it, but why don't we let uh, Chris or Linda here, Chris, we'll go to you first and you can talk about, you know, maybe maybe there's something there that I'm missing. No, I think you, I think you nailed it. And we, you know, actually before we, we launched this kind of, you know, social component of the research, we had, um, we had done a lot of sort of spatial analysis of, you know, basically taking that, that remotely sensed, you know, information about where we saw higher rates of cover crop adoption, and then running it through a bunch of models with, you know, soil type, weather, you know, average rainfall, spring rainfall, um, you know, fall, rainfall, um, you know, 
temperature gradients, um, anything we could think of. We basically tried to look to see if we could pull out kind of a really strong driver. And the biggest thing that seemed to be associated with those, those trends that just jumps right out at you at the map is that temperature gradient and that, um, that spring rainfall. And um, those sort of really, really correlated strongly with those rates of cover crop adoption. Um, so anyway, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's no surprise. It makes a lot of sense. And then we need to fold that kind of awareness and that information in with these social pieces and then figure out, okay, well, how do we move forward to try to help, you know, encourage adoption in some of these places that have been a little more, you know, a little more recalcitrant, a little slower to adopt. Um, and, you know, yet we'd still see, you know, kind of climate and water quality and, and resilience benefits if we had a little more adoption in some of these other areas too. We are going to take a short break. We will be right back with our conversation with Linda Prokopi at Purdue University and Chris Johnson of The Nature Conservancy. And we're back. We are talking with Linda Prokopi of Purdue and Chris Johnson of The Nature Conservancy. Yeah, so Chris, let's continue to dig into that on like, okay, so how do we scale? And obviously the Nature Conservancy has some direct play in this. And, and in Iowa, there's the 4R Plus program that the Nature Conservancy is leading. And, and we've been involved in some of that as well. But like I said, some of these things we can't change. We can't change necessarily what's happening with the rainfall or, you know, with the temperature patterns and stuff like that. Like that's out of our control. Even like the the culture deal seems to be really tough. And, and if it was a culture thing, then it should spread you know, adjacent to that county. And you should be able to pull in other people across that county line that you already know and that your neighbors with, they're right down the road. They're just outside the county line. So Chris, how do we continue to scale? And what's the answer, Chris? We need the yeah. answer on how this, how this goes forward. Well, you're, you're in luck. I brought the answer with me today. Perfect. So, That's um, why we got you here. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's a lot of everything. It's, you know, that, that kind of proverbial silver buckshot. We have a number of different kind of strategies we're working on. You mentioned carbon markets earlier. We're really involved in some of these emerging, you know, ecosystem service market efforts because we think, you know, there's obviously a, a, a limit, a pretty, a pretty real limit to public funds that are going to be available to provide cost share to producers. You know, so there's a there's a ceiling to those public dollars that are going to be available. Uh, for for producers. So if we can find a way to activate um, the private sector, to activate consumers, to activate companies that have set, you know, climate goals and water quality goals, if we can find a way to bring them into the equation and to, you know, do the monitoring, do the verification that we need to, to make sure that, you know, when a producer adopts a practice, it generates an outcome and that they are rewarded and incentivized for that. But then there are also these really kind of more complex, um, you know, social barriers that we have to unpack and we have to work on. We've got to build farmer networks. We've got to build better relationships between the private sector and the public sector. And that that is trickier and thornier. And, and uh, you know, it's a little harder to sort of design a one size fits all solution. Um, you have to kind of work from place to place a little bit more iteratively, I think. So do either of you have any specific examples that you can share with us of collaboration that you've seen between farmers and local advisors where it's made a noticeable difference? 
Yeah, I can share an example um, from actually a couple of different watersheds where we've done some work with the Nature Conservancy. We do quite a bit of work with the Nature Conservancy, it seems. Um, So Big Pine Watershed, which is just north of where I am in West Lafayette, Indiana, they've done some really nice collaboration. In fact, Mitch, I saw you were at a field day there. I watched watched online. (laughs) So the Big Pine Watershed um, was in conjunction with Rick Clark's field day that I helped out in uh, August of 2020. And uh, not to... uh, spoil it spoil uh linda what linda's getting into but they have their own beer and uh i still have a couple of them in my fridge right now so that's pretty cool yeah i attended online and i did not get a beer that was not fair (laughs) yeah i'm a little bummed out i wasn't invited to this so, but they've done some really nice collaborations there with the private sector. So there's a, a very close relationship between the SWCD and RCS and the private sector in that watershed, um, which has been really nice to watch. It's a very, very committed um, crop advisor who's really been willing to come to the table and talk there. And then we also did some work up in the Saginaw Bay watershed up in Michigan, where they, it was a uh, RCPP, Regional Conservation Partnership Project. So it was a partnership between the Michigan Agribusiness Alliance and NRCS at the state level. And TNC was helping to facilitate that relationship. And, and they were able to find that by partnering with the private sector, right, they were getting farmers to come into the NRCS offices with their crop advisor who hadn't come in before which is super important, right? Because we know that the types of farmers who voluntarily go to the NRCS office are not necessarily like the other farmers, right? So having this other pathway to getting farmers in the door seemed to be really effective. I really like that point there too, on using your advisors and stuff around you. That's something that I've been talking about with like some of these ecosystem service markets. And yeah, you can get farmers to directly participate in cost share or ecosystem service markets or whatever, but that farmer has so many different decisions that they're making and so many things they have to keep track of that they can't necessarily keep track of all of these other sustainability opportunities as well. Like there's only so many hours in a day. Uh, so utilizing those advisors and helping them is really critical. And and yeah, I was up in the Saginaw Bay um, helping with that, that project and helping to document what's going on up there. Uh, we're making some videos and there will be some more follow-up that'll come out of that project that I think will be pretty cool. But um, what about Chris, you know, the, the nature conservancy works a lot with like the landlords and stuff too. What's the, what's a role in on that or like farm size or, or any comments on some of those kind of items? Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, we have a, you know, kind of a body of work where we're trying to understand uh, how to, how to make some, some headway and, and improving outcomes on land that's that's rented because we you, you can see pretty clearly from these maps that in the counties where you have a higher percentage of you know land that's farmed by by a farmer who's leasing that land the adoption's lower and it makes perfect sense right because if a farmer isn't sure if he or she is going to be you know on the land another year another five years it's hard to invest a lot in tinkering with their operation or, you know, new capital for new equipment or things like that. So, um, so we've been trying to understand how to basically support more conversations between the landlords and, and the leasing farmers um, so that the landlords kind of understand some of the opportunities that, that are presenting themselves to the farmers and can support them as needed, give them kind of the flexibility to, you know, to adjust their practices as needed. Um, so there's a variety of different things that are kind of being considered. One of them could be, for example, a, 
a tax credit of some kind, you know? And so if, uh, if a land owner has the opportunity to, to get some kind of, you know, property tax credit or incentive of some kind for greater adoption of practices that can provide, you know, water quality and, and climate and environmental benefits, you know, and actually benefit the soil and the productivity of the soil, well, that that might be, you know, sort of a, a test pilot to consider in a couple places. Um, so there's a lot of different things. J- just to circle back to your comment about the advisors, we couldn't agree more, you know, that that relationship between the farmer and um, and their, you know, retailers, their sort of crop service advisors, just so important. And so trying to find ways in which that those professionals can can be conservation advocates, can provide conservation information, and can actually see business opportunities for themselves as retailers in providing that conservation information. Maybe it's you know under the umbrella of an emerging ecosystem service market, or maybe it's something else. But I think that's another kind of really key pathway to to try to work on and and unlock uh, you know more adoption that way as well. So. Uh- quick follow on follow up on that chris with the advisors and stuff one of the things that i've thought a lot about is how is that advisor going to be incentivized in helping to drive the adoption here okay so for like that for the ag retailer they make money today based on the amount of inputs that they're selling this is a little bit different shift how do we incentivize them any any thoughts on on that again, Chris, you got to come with all the answers here today, all the major solutions. How do we incentivize those advisors and some of the other people out that surround that farmer? We've thought a lot about this, and we we don't have a an answer yet. But I think one thing to think about is you know the four R certification program. We've started to see more and more uptake on the part of nutrient service providers becoming certified retailers of of you know nutrient products and nutrient services, and what that means is they are um, providing, you know, they're selling product and they're providing nutrient application advice within sort of the guidelines of the principles of the four R's, right place, right time, right amount, right source. And um, so like if you have that tag of being a four R certified retailer, that that helps you stand out from your competition in terms of providing information and services to producers. So I think that's one pathway. I mean, another thing that I, I wonder about is, you know, thinking about ag retailers almost along the same lines as like a, a financial manager, you know, and financial managers get compensated in different ways when you sell stock shares, but they can also be compensated at the overall health of your portfolio. And so, you know, is there a way that um, retailers could be involved in an ecosystem service market, could be involved in the overall profitability, productivity of a farm, and could be, you know, incentivized to provide advice that kind of heads a farm in that direction overall, you know? So again, brainstorming a little bit, we don't have this, this figured out, but I think there's a lot of creativity that, that can come to help out. Linda, I want to jump back to the examples you gave with uh, Saginaw Bay and was it, did you say it was Big Pine? Mm-hmm. Yep. Were those examples directly from the study that we're talking about here today? No, mm-mm. Separate studies. Do, do you have any examples from directly from this study that would uh, that would show a good collaboration between uh, local advisors and the farmers? 
Yeah, there were several counties where that that entrepreneur that we said was so important, the relationship between the government agency and an entrepreneur, where the entrepreneur was an advisor, right? So sometimes it was a, a farmer, but oftentimes it was an advisor. So there were lots of examples of that, of an advisor who was just, you know, very excited and talking about this a lot, but also, as Chris was saying, sort of finding a business opportunity for themselves in this as well, right? Maybe selling cover crop seeds or whatever else. It's basically this idea that, that there's benefit to be gained by optimizing our use of nutrients, not only for the environment and for reducing nutrient loss to surface water and groundwater, but also for the producer in terms of really tightening up that profitability and not using any more nutrients, you know, which costs money than is absolutely necessary. So based on the findings here, Chris, how do you expect cover crop adoption might change in the near future? And what can we do to accelerate that pace of adoption? Yeah, well, I mean, the good news is if you look back over the last, you know, five and, and certainly, you know, 10 years, cover crop adoption has been on a on a pretty steady incline. You know, we're increasing pretty steadily, pretty quickly um, from where we were, you know, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. So that's great. And if that trend line continues, we're going to see, you know, really broad adoption, you know, by half of the farmers, half of the acres in the country within the next, you know, 10 or 15 years or so. We want it to to be faster than that. We want to actually get to that, you know, 50% adoption level much, much quicker, you know, in the next three years, five years, seven years. We want to see that happen really quickly because we know the benefits in terms of carbon stored in the soil, nutrient loss reduced to, to surface waters and building that soil health for that longer term resilience and productivity. We know those benefits are there. So we want to see that happen faster. And I think in order to, to unlock that, we've, you know, we've got to implement kind of some of these findings and insights from this project about how to build stronger sort of social networks that can support adoption. And we've got to unlock some of these new sort of financial resources for producers, you know, by way of ecosystem service markets and, you know, linking up kind of supply chain outcomes with what the producer is doing on his or her property. So that's just a couple ideas. Linda, I'm wondering, do you have any specific examples where there was a pair of like counties right next to each other where the differences might have been obvious? And did you guys dig into that? And what did you find? Yeah, so let's talk about an Iowa pairing. So we paired Clark County as a high adopting county with both Adair and Union counties, which were both lower adopting counties that matched in terms of climate zone, et cetera. Um, And we found several key differences. So we didn't find any of the the factors that lead to higher cover crop adoption in either Adair or Union, but we found several of them present in Clark County, including um, this cover crop culture issue that we've already talked quite a bit about. And specifically what we found in Clark County is that cover crops were part of this entrepreneurial culture and producers were much more willing to experiment with cover crops there for whatever reason than they were in the other counties. Um, We found that in Union and Adair, there were some individual producers who had adopted cover crops, but they didn't seem to really talk to other farmers about what they were doing. So the practice wasn't spreading or being accepted. Um, And that most of the farmers in those counties set what we were told by the, the folks we talked to is that most of the producers thought cover crops just wouldn't work in their area. So, so just that very different culture going on across those counties. What do you think, cause that? What, I mean, why, 
Why would that be? You just, I have to imagine that seeing my neighbor have success with cover crops would be, you know, more telling to me than anything else ever could be. It's sort of a puzzle, right? Like, why does it emerge in some places and not other places, I think is one of the key things that I, I don't even know how we dig into it. Is it just a personality issue? Is it a more homogenous community, although I would imagine all of those counties are relatively homogenous, right? So that's probably not what's explaining it, but there's definitely something going on there with the different cultures. So, and I've been to um, like some field days over in this area that we've helped with and, and I've seen kind of that conservation culture that was there. Uh, definitely a lot of these guys that are involved in raising cattle as well, I, I think is a takeaway from me. Um, there's a couple different um, sources right there of cover crop seed as well. And then there's some consultants, some agronomy guys that are out pushing it, um, that we've done some working with. And, but one of the things that I was over in Clark County, um, probably in like, uh, it would have been August or September here of uh, 2020 and a field day that was kind of thrown together kind of last minute, um, tossed out there. And there was like 50 people that showed up, like, just kind of out of the blue, not really any advertising going into it, but a lot of farmers that were really interested in doing this interseeded cover crops and 60 inch corn. So um, definitely kind of, you know, have observed and seeing that, that they've got some variability to the ground. They've got some cattle, they've got, you know, availability of seed. They've got some of these entrepreneurial companies that are right there. And I don't know, it, it makes sense. I didn't, I didn't realize though that they had adoption rates that were quite that high. It looks like they're what maybe getting close to 10% or so adoption. Um, maybe not quite that high between six and 8% or something like that. Yeah. The other thing that was really noticeable in the count in, in Clark County compared to the other two is when we did our focus groups with folks there, it was very clear that the agencies were collaborating a lot together Right. And they had a very strong rapport and were even sort of finishing each other's sentences of, oh, remember that time we did the thing and they would remember. Right. So just a very different culture of, of even collaboration at that agency level than we saw in the other counties. So, Linda, start uh, taking us home here on what do you know, what do we need to do next? And, and from your standpoint, like um, what are some of the ongoing efforts that need to continue to happen here and some of your overall takeaways to um, to work on wrapping this up for us here today? Well, I think one key takeaway is is clearly this issue of culture, right? And how do we foster that culture in other places? And how do we foster the entrepreneurs, right? It's um, certainly, we know crop advisors can be really excellent entrepreneurs. And how do we foster more of that? Maybe even writing up some sort of successful case studies of, of crop advisors who have created that, helped to create a culture in a county. So that could be replicated, Um I think we, yeah, there's, so there's more work like that. We're also talking about replicating this study in other parts of the U.S. as part of a USDA project that I'm part of to see if we find similar things outside of the three I-states or if the three I-states are unique. I expect we'll find similar things, but it would be interesting to see. Well, and I think that'll be really interesting too because I know down in like Tennessee and some of these southern southern states, they have much higher rates of adoption than what we have up here. And I wonder if some of those extremes are going to be even more extreme because of uh, that some of those really you know far along counties are going to be even further along than some of the counties up here in the I states. That's going to be interesting to see especially you know when you get into different geographies you're talking about a lot of different crops now mm -hmm. not just the 
dominating corn and soybeans like we have here in the upper Midwest, but looking at different crops and how different farmers in different areas with completely different operations and how that works and see, see if it's the same or not. I think that's going to be an interesting thing to look at. Well, and even Chesapeake Bay, seeing if some of the different regulations in the different states, how those overlay on top of individual counties' cultures. Well, and it'll be interesting too on like, um, I know Ohio wasn't a part of like this study here, but there's data on Ohio and now they have like their H2 Ohio program or some of these new initiatives that are rolling out. And I wonder how those will help in conjunction to be part of the solution to potentially accelerate some of these initiatives. Chris, any any final thoughts on your standpoint or, or some thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think that's a great call out about the H2 Ohio program because I think it's going to take, it's a both and approach that's needed, right? I mean, we have to we have to make sure that we continue to have, you know, the public investment in programs like, you know, the farm bill, conservation programs, but also, you know, state programs like we have here in Minnesota or like H2 Ohio that can provide that support. But we also know from from Linda's work that that that's not going to be enough. And we've got to also bring in that private investment, you know, those ecosystem service market opportunities. But we also know, you know, that's probably not enough. We've also got to make sure there's sufficient, you know, technical assistance. There's, you know, access to to the right equipment and the right information that those field days that you were talking about, Mitchell, keep happening, you know, so that farmers can learn from other farmers and can see that success. And I think what we're all trying to do is just, you know, we're trying to sort of have all of those things be moving forward and to spin that that flywheel faster and faster until it it all kind of takes off, you know, and and then we start to see things really build and that momentum really build as there's enough resources, there's enough information, there's enough capacity, and um, producers start to see the benefits, you know, on their own farms as well. Um, so it's, you know, that's kind of what we're doing at the at the Nature Conservancy is really trying to push on all those fronts simultaneously, knowing that that we've got to have them all in in place to kind of to move us forward. That is it for Fieldwork today. If you guys want to catch up on all the great content from our series on Washington County, we've got it all collected on one page of our website, fieldworktalk.org slash conservation dash culture. That is fieldworktalk.org slash conservation dash culture. Our show is produced by Amy Baxter with lots of great help this season from Lori Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media, Ellie Lyons does our marketing, and Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator. Thanks to the operations staff at American Public Media who helped out with recording and mixing our shows this season. We are once again at Fieldwork Talk on all of the usual social media channels. We've got some new content on our YouTube too, so make sure you check that one out. We do head over there, check out those videos to kind of catch up and see who it is that we are actually talking to in this series. Don't forget that we like hearing from you. Give us a call with your comments or questions, or if you just want to be like Jake, you can just call in and praise us and say things like, hey, the the podcast is good and it's back. If you want to do that, it is 651-228-4810. Again, that is 651-228-4810. I've got a science question. For a coconut tree to grow, do you have to like? Does the whole coconut have to get planted? Because what kind of bird is carrying a coconut around? <laughs>
Nah, yeah. I don't know. My mouth is broken. <laughs>